Good morning, everyone. Slightly echoey today, but who cares? It's good to see you. Uh, welcome along to Trinity Church. Great to have you, uh, particularly if you are new. Let me add my welcome to Malx. Uh, it's good to see you uh, as you join us today as we continue through the book of Acts. Uh, it's nice for me to be back this week. I was away preaching at one of the churches that we partner with uh, in the south of the city in Chawton last week. And I tell you what, I loved serving that church, and it was great to be with them, but I really miss being with you guys. And I think that's a good sign. It's a good sign when uh, the pastor is not just relieved to have a little break. Um, I, I was longing to be uh, with you all, so it's great to be back and, uh, and to see your faces today. And, um, oh yeah, I should say, and it's good. Those guys who are watching online, hi. Um, well, what a week it's been. Um, you know, I was, I was three years old when the Berlin Wall fell. Maybe that makes some of you feel a little bit old. Uh, I don't remember the events myself, uh, but as, a, as a, a student of history, I, I've seen the images. And it really feels, uh, doesn't it, that although no physical wall has been constructed over the past few days, we are, we are back in the dark days of the, uh, of the, the second half of the 20th century. And I'm sure all of us have watched with uh, similar degrees of, of horror and admiration uh, as the bombs began to fall on Ukraine and the people of Ukraine have stood defiantly together in the face of death. Uh, their military making the Russians pay for every yard that they have taken. Their president and their political leaders haven't fled Kiev, but are standing there armed with their people, fighting on the streets. Those are the kind of leaders you want to follow, aren't they? I mean, surely that has moved each of us this week to see guys like that standing for their people. Seeing the YouTube videos of civilians berating invading soldiers to their faces, and still this morning... Against the odds, Kiev stands. When I was writing this sermon earlier this week, I didn't expect that to happen. I had to change my introduction slightly this morning. Because still this morning, Kiev stands. Defying, shaming the evil of Vladimir Putin. Galvanizing the rest of the world to come to their aid. Now, as we've watched on over the last few days, surely one of the questions raised for each of us, and I've had a couple of conversations with us this morning, I know we're thinking the same way, is what would we be willing to die for? What would we, we be willing to die for? It's a question that rarely, if ever, we've had to ask. Certainly my generation, we've grown up in times of peace. What are we willing to die for? Where is the red line where we say, no further. And so in that sense, Act 7 is a timely passage for us this morning. It records for us the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And what we've seen over the past few weeks is that after an initial period of growth where Everything was great, and there was great unity in the church, and every time they talked about Jesus, thousands of people became Christians. Opposition has started to grow. Conflict arose amongst them, and opposition arose around them. The apostles have first been arrested and warned, 
then arrested and beaten. And now Stephen, one of the prominent men in the church, is brutally stoned to death. And I think it's right for us to acknowledge this morning that it is highly, highly unlikely that any of us will ever face that sort of threat to life here in the UK for following Jesus. But we know that throughout history, and still today, Christians face significant opposition and threat to life for following Jesus, depending on which part of the world you are in. And although we might not face that level of threat in, in our country right now, we are, we are really not that far from situations where Christians may be arrested for so-called hate speech. Already there are examples of people who have lost their jobs for following Jesus. There are many examples of people who have been denied opportunities or lost friendships for standing for Jesus. And so the question I want to pose to us this morning is, where is our red line? Where we stand and we say, no further. How, and how do we figure out where we need to make our stand? And where we say, this is where I will suffer the consequences. So let me pray for us. And let's ask God to help us as we deal with these difficult questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless us now with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Give us grace, Lord. Accompany the preaching of the gospel with power so that we may see exactly what we've just been talking about. Where are those red lines? Where do we need to take our stand? Indeed, if it ever came to it, what would we be willing to die for as we follow you, Lord Jesus? Spirit of God, we need your help. So open our minds, stir our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the question is, how do we figure out where the red line is? That's, that's the first question we're going to deal with this morning. And the answer that we see in this text that will help us to live it, live this out in 21st century Manchester is that our red lines are determined by our culture and by the gospel. That's the big idea. You're not really supposed to give the big idea when you are a preacher and communicator, like up front. You're supposed to make you guys work for it, but I don't care. We're just doing it this way this morning. So Stephen is a great example to us at the end of, ch of chapter 6 of what it looks like to be a spirit-filled Christian. Remember, he is not an apostle. Okay, we saw last week that the church had appointed him to be one of the seven. Basically, to be a member of the hospitality team. So shout out to those of you who are on the hospitality team this morning. He was the guy making sure that the kids didn't eat all the bourbons before the adults got out at the end. You all know that terrible feeling at the end of church. You spent too long in here talking. You get out there. There's only custard creams left. You basically think, what is the point in continuing living? Um, that's... Kind of like Stephen's job, I suppose, um, in a very vague way. So he and uh, his six other guys are tasked with ensuring that there is fair distribution of food uh, for the destitute in the early church in Jerusalem, the widows who cannot provide for themselves. But you see, that's, Stephen doesn't just think, okay, so that's my job, that's my role, that's what I'm going to do. You know, the apostles are the gospel guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, uh, the biscuits or whatever. No. When he's not doing that, he's telling everyone he meets 
about Jesus. He's just living as a Christian and speaking for Jesus. Verse 8 tells us that he was a man full of God's grace and power, and he performed great wonders and signs among the people. And by the way, another little example there of why we believe that it's not just the apostles who can perform signs and wonders. Stephen is not an apostle, and yet here we see uh, the Spirit working through him. Back in verse 3 of chapter 6, we've already seen him described as full of the Spirit and wisdom. And that same thing is reiterated again for us there in verse 10. Stephen was powerfully and unashamedly living for Jesus. And as we've noted, two things happen when God's people live that way. The first thing is that the church advances as people come to trust in Jesus for themselves. So we see in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So people are hearing the good news that Jesus died for us to forgive us for our sins, and that he beat death by rising again from his own grave, and that all we need to do to receive that forgiveness is to put our faith in him, to stop trying to earn God's forgiveness ourselves and trust in Jesus to receive it freely as a gift. People are hearing that news, and they're believing it, and their lives are being changed. That's one of the reasons why we say that change is one of our values here at Trinity Church. Do you see that phrase there? The priest became obedient to the faith. Faith results in radical life transformation. That's what happens when we powerfully and unashamedly live for Jesus. We, we see people starting to live and act differently. But what also happens is, verse 9, opposition increases. For the Jewish establishment, the fact that a large number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith, is a big problem. A big problem. This is a challenge to the very center of the Jewish religion. The guys whose job it is to offer sacrifices in the temple are going, we don't need to do this anymore. Jesus is the sacrifice. The one time for all sacrifice atoning for our sins. So great. We can stop doing this. And so what happens is the opposition increases. And Stephen gets dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council who had previously condemned Jesus to death. And those who accused him in verse 13 produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and changed the customs Moses handed down to us. And in chapter 7, verse 1, we read, The high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And as Grant said, what, what then transpires is the longest sermon in Acts, and one of the most powerful as well. Now what we are seeing here is that our red lines the points where we are challenged to stand for Jesus and face the consequences are, in large part, determined by the culture around us. In other words, the nature of the opposition that we experience for following Jesus will depend upon the time and the place and the people that we find ourselves living 
amongst. And the point at which the gospel, the message of the gospel confronts and challenges the status quo. That's precisely what is happening here in first century Jerusalem. But it's precisely because we don't live in first century Jerusalem that we're not getting arrested right now and being questioned about what Jesus had to say about the temple and the law. You probably haven't had many conversations or heated moments for following Jesus where someone's been shouting at you about what you think about the temple, for example. Because we don't live in the Middle East right now. Although, obviously, there's a large Jewish community on our doorstep. Maybe, if you know, uh, know some Jews, you'll have conversations like that. But for many of us, the red lines are drawn in different places. Obvious ones that come to mind this morning for us in our culture particularly uh, is what the Bible has to say on sexual ethics. Most churches in the past never had to have a position statement on sexual ethics because the culture was not pressing them on it. But today, we are often put under significant pressure over what the Bible has to teach about marriage and human sexuality. The same could be said about claims of objective truth and the authority of the Bible, or the question of human suffering. That's something that we often get pressed upon. Or questions about how science and religion can coexist. See, it's not harder to be a Christian today. Boy, we buy into that narrative so often. We think, oh man, it's never been more difficult to follow Jesus than it is right now. Well, I don't know about you, but no one in this church has been stoned recently, right? It's not harder to be a Christian today. We are just being asked different types of questions. And if we are to understand where the red line is, where it is that we need to take a stand, we need to think carefully about our culture and the subcultures that we each engage with to figure out what this looks like for each of us. Ask, what's making people angry? Or, what if I said this out loud would cause an argument or awkwardness in my family or in my workplace? Why does this part of the gospel seem so offensive and unacceptable to people today? Ask those kind of questions. They will help you to see where the red lines are being drawn. Our red lines are determined by our culture, firstly, which changes. But Act 7 also shows us that the red line is determined by the gospel that never changes. We haven't had time to read Stephen's full defense of chapter 7. I'd encourage you, actually, uh, to go home this afternoon and take some time and just read it. It'll probably take you about 10 minutes, depending on how slow a reader you are. Some of you, 20. Um, but essentially what Stephen does here in chapter 7 is he gives the Sanhedrin an overview of history throughout the Old Testament. And he's showing them two bi big things. These are his big ideas. Okay? First, he's showing them that they have misunderstood the significance of the temple. His big point is that God has never been confined to a particular space and that the temple has been a temporary picture for the people of Israel that pointed to a greater reality that has now come. So just look at me. We'll do this very quickly. But um, look at me at what Stephen says. He starts, you can break his sermon down basically into four main sections that focus on Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then David and Solomon. 
okay? So he starts with Abraham, and he says in verse 2, The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, okay? So what he's showing them there is that God didn't need to get Abraham to a certain place, to the temple. He came to Abraham, okay? Again, he is saying the same thing when he speaks about Joseph there in verse 9. He says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. How did God say, oh, Joseph, you need to come uh, back to Cana to a certain place onto Moriah Mount? No, he didn't. God was with Joseph in Egypt. That's the point that Stephen is making. Then he moves on to Moses. And this is where Stephen spends most of his time because he has been accused in verse, seven of, uh, verse, verse 11 sorry, of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so Stephen takes that seriously. He's like, fine, if we're going to talk about Moses, let's talk about Moses. What do we read in verse 33 about Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush? Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, why? Had Moses built a giant temple in five seconds? No. Here is the holy place, but it is holy not because Moses was in the temple in Jerusalem, but because God himself is present on Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia, is where we're led to believe it is. And then Stephen concludes by saying, look, sure, there was the tabernacle, and then eventually David and Solomon built the temple, but, what does he say in verse 48? However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, um, chapter 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? So, Stephen is showing them that they have fundamentally misunderstood the significance of the temple the place isn't important, God is important, and he'd never be constrained to a place. But because they've misunderstood that, secondly, they have misunderstood the significance of Jesus. He shows how the people of Israel repeatedly rejected and misunderstood what God was doing throughout their history. The patriarchs, in verse 9, sold Joseph into slavery. The slaves in Egypt, in verse 25, didn't see that God had sent Moses to be their rescuer. The freed people of Israel, in verse 39, again, rejected Moses as their savior and turned back to Egypt. And Stephen says to the Sanhedrin in verse 37, This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Who's he talking about there? The Lord Jesus, of course. He is the greater Moses, the true lawgiver. When Jesus, it, it, uh, just think about this for a moment. When Jesus goes up onto the mountainside and uh, gives the Beatitudes, what he is doing is he is saying, like Moses, from the mount, I am giving you the new law. He is the new Moses, the better Moses. And Moses spoke about him. That's what Stephen is saying there. And you're missing the point. Another Moses has come to lead us out of slavery to sin. But 
the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they rejected him too, just like they did with Moses. And so he concludes in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You cared about the building, and you murdered the one that it was built for. Now, now the point I'm, I'm showing us this morning is simply this. That our red lines are determined by the culture and by the gospel. Stephen knows this book inside and out. I wonder how many of us, if we were called this morning to stand up and give a defense, would be able to speak so eloquently on these things with such confidence and such clarity around the story and the message of the gospel in the scriptures. If we want to know where we need to make our stand as believers today in 21st century Manchester, what we need to do is to listen to those around us with this book open. Where is the pressure coming from where we, to, to force us to walk away from Jesus? That is where our red lines lie. You know, one of the things that has been um, so striking about the situation in Ukraine over the last few days is how quickly the general population have taken their stand. With what clarity and unity they have acted. That, that, has that struck you as odd? I mean, uh, if it had been us who had suddenly had, you know, Russian tanks rolling down the streets of Manchester, I think it would have taken us a while to figure out how we collectively would have wanted to respond. But the Ukrainian people haven't had that issue. And I was, I was pondering this, and, and I was talking to Ben. I, 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 so Ben, the guy in the video, uh, he, he's planted a, a church that's about um, five hours drive south of uh, Kiev. I was talking to him on Tuesday about what was almost inevitably about to happen. And he said, you know, it was, everyone in the West is much more anxious and worked up about this right now than we are here. It was far worse for us in 2014. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, that's when the Crimea was taken over and they invaded the Donbass. You see, what has happened over the past eight years is that you, the Ukrainian people have already been fighting this war. This is their lived experience. So they are ready in the moment when the question is asked, are you willing to die for this? They know their answer. They've had eight years to work it out. And you see, what strikes me this morning is that you know if you are prepared to die for something, if you have been prepared to live for it. How do we know that if the day ever came, we will be prepared to die for Jesus? It's because we are prepared to live for him now or not. We are prepared to stand when the stakes are not so high that we would shed our own blood. Brothers and sisters, if we are to learn to die for him, 
we must learn how to live for him. To make our stand when the red lines are drawn. Now that is hard. That is a hard word to us this morning. But there is great encouragement here for us. Great encouragement. You know, Stephen, he preaches this unbelievable sermon to the Sanhedrin. But he still preaches in his death a sermon to us today. Because as he dies, as he is stoned, he teaches us three things that I want to just land on uh, this morning with our time remaining. The first is this, that when we stand, Jesus stands with us. We read there in verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, we are told, if we are, if we are good Christians here this morning and know our Bibles well, the Son of God, when he had finished his work on earth, when he had paid the price for our sins and risen from the dead, ascended back into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he remains today, ruling and reigning until he will return. But what does Stephen see when he gazes into heaven, when by the Spirit his eyes are open to see what is going on as the veil is pulled back for a moment? He sees his Savior standing there. Brothers and sisters, when we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. The Son of God is so moved, so invested, so close, that he cannot remain seated passively on heaven's throne. But he must stand with us. His eye is trained upon us. His heart beats with ours. His will is for us and he cheers us home. When we walk the way that Jesus walked, he will not stay seated. He stands and he gazes at Stephen and says, I am for you right now. All of the power and grace of heaven is bent towards him in that moment. When you sacrifice, when you stand, it does not go unnoticed. Our king stands with us, full of love and power. He rises to his feet to give us his aid. That is strong encouragement for us this morning. That when we see our red lines, we must stand. For Jesus stands with us. That is the first thing we have to take home today. Secondly, when we are rejected, brothers and sisters, Jesus welcomes us home. In verse 59, while they were stoning him, while they were stoning him, as blows rained down upon him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What does that tell us today? That death for us is not the end. If we have trusted in Jesus, the paradox that the gospel reveals and reminds us of this morning is that the moment of ultimate rejection by the world is, for those who belong to Christ, the moment of eternal welcome. Remember, brothers and sisters, 
If Jesus is yours today, when your eyes close in death, whenever and however that day comes, in that moment, you will see the Lord. Though our bodies are destroyed, our spirits go immediately to be with Jesus, to await physical resurrection in the glory of his presence. Even if the last thing we see on earth is the raging anger and malice of our enemy, the next thing we will see and will continue to see for all eternity is the glorious face of the one who loved us to death and back, welcoming us with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my Father's rest. When we stand, Jesus stands with us. When we are rejected, Jesus welcomes us home. And finally, when we take up our cross, the world sees our Savior. Verse 60 says, Then Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's death, we should recognize it. There are echoes there, are there not? Of Calvary. He is falsely accused. He's put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He's taken outside the city and he's killed. And as he dies, he even echoes the words of Jesus who prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The manner of Stephen's death showed those around him Jesus. And what we're going to see next week is that the result of his death was the opposite of that which his murderers intended. So far, the growth of the church has been located in Jerusalem. But the death of Stephen is the catalyst that sees the gospel now start to spread through Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the moment that Jesus uses to start spreading the gospel like wildfire. And we're even given a foreshadowing of just how amazing God is that he works life through death. Because what do we see in verses 58 and then chapter 8, verse 1? A young man named Saul was there holding the coats of those who threw the stones and approving of his death a subtle foreshadowing that will be picked up in a couple of chapters time when we see just what God will do with a man who approves of the murder of his friend but will become the one who writes half of the New Testament. <laughs> you see, God uses our willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel to take up our cross and follow Jesus to advance the mission of his church. You know, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, what do we read? If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will be my witnesses. 
Then we're going to finish with some Greek this morning. Weird place to finish, right? You know the word that is translated witnesses for us? In Greek, martyros. It's the same word from which we get the word martyr. You will be my martyrs, said Jesus. It is through our willingness to die for Christ that the gospel spreads. The church advances. Jesus sends us to be his witnesses by laying down our lives for him. May we have the courage when we arrive at the red line to stand, to be rejected, to suffer, knowing that the Son of God himself stands with us, knowing that in our rejection we are welcomed home, and knowing with confidence that he uses our sacrifices to display to the watching world that the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life is found in Jesus alone. Let me pray for us as we come to sing again. Heavenly Father, we, we hear your word this morning. And oh Lord, what a challenge it is to us. Where are we willing to lay down our lives? For what would we, would we be willing to die for? Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us to see, as Stephen did that day, the glory of the risen Christ. Jesus, help us to see that you stand with us, that you welcome us home that you use our sacrifice, that it is not meaningless. Give us courage. Help us to discern as we understand our culture and as we have our Bibles open where the red lines are for us today and help us be prepared to stand. And Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.